Well, on November 22nd, 1873, Horatio Spafford suffered an unspeakable tragedy. He had planned a European trip, uh, some time away, a vacation for his family, but in a last-second change of plans, he ended up needing to send his family on ahead, and he fully intended to follow after and join them later. It's 1873. They couldn't fly, so he sent them on a ship. And the ship that he sent his family on was the SS Ville du Haver. And in the early hours of the morning, there was a collision. The SS Ville du Haver ran into another ship, the Lockern, and suffered incredible damage, eventually sinking in only 12 minutes. The Lockern did all that she could and was able to save the lives of 87 people. But for 226 others, it was not meant to be. 226 lives perished on that cold November morning, including all four of Horatio's daughters. All four of his daughters. His wife, Anna, survived, made it to land, and sent her husband this telegram, saved alone. Immediately, Horatio departed to be with his wife, taking a ship across the Atlantic. Can you imagine that journey? The thoughts, emotions, the pain that must have been present. Horatio was a committed follower of Jesus with a deep and abiding faith. And while his ship was near the spot in the Atlantic where his four daughters had died, he was moved to write the now famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. The first verse of that hymn reads, When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now that is an incredibly rich bit of songwriting, even without the context of what the writer of this verse was going through. The verse is saying this, no matter what my situation Whether full of peace or whether full of turmoil and sorrow, you, God, have taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Which begs a really, really important question, I think. Does God care about the sorrows and the hardships that are present in our lives? Do they break his heart or does he merely hand wave at them? Oh, no, that's not a big deal. Just get over your sorrows. Just say it is well and and move on. Everything will be fine. Is that God's posture towards us in the midst of our pain, towards our tragedies, our hardships, our brokenness? No. No, of course not. I promise you, God is not dismissive of the difficulties in your life. And God was not dismissive of Horatio Spafford's incredible tragedy and loss either, which brings us back to his hymn. Because how in the world could he pen this verse? How could he write these words? How, after losing all four of his daughters, how? How could he possibly say, it is well with my soul? Here's how. Horatio knew deeply that his life His story was but a part of a much bigger story. 
And what's more, not only did he know that his life was but a small part of a much bigger story, when it came to that bigger story, he knows the ending. We see this to be true as we continue to walk through the rest of the hymn. The final verse of It Is Well, the original lyrics. But Lord, it's for you, for your coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend a song in the night, O my soul. You're coming back, Jesus. Horatio writes with excitement, with anticipation, and I know what happens when you return. You make everything sad come untrue. You wipe away the tears. You raise the dead. You destroy the devil. You fully establish your kingdom, your rule, your reign. You see, Horatio knew deeply that his story was but a part of a much bigger, much grander, much more beautiful story with the most incredible of endings. Did that knowledge make the pain go away? Did it automatically end the deep grief that he felt over the loss of his daughters? Was it easy for him to say, it is well with my soul? No, of course not. But situating his story within God's bigger story made it possible for him to say, it is well. Possible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul writes, We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but we are never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. The Apostle Paul was someone who regularly experienced Horatio Spafford-level tragedies and hardships. The Apostle Paul was someone who lived an incredibly difficult life, and yet he also found it possible to write these words, pressed, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, hunted down, but not abandoned, knocked down, but not destroyed. How? How did he pen these words? The same way that Horatio could pen these words. Paul knew deeply that his story was but a part of a much bigger story. Here it is. Don't miss it. The new life is situated in a much bigger story. The new life is situated in a much bigger story. Tonight is our fifth message in our teaching series, The New Life. And over the course of this series, we've been unpacking different aspects of the new life that is only possible in Jesus. And this evening, what we're going to see, what we're going to learn, is that the new life is situated in a much bigger story. Tonight, we're talking about the Bible. The Bible is hard, isn't it? I'll be the first to admit, the Bible is a challenging book. It can be intimidating confusing, difficult to understand. Now, if you've ever felt that way about the Bible, you are not alone. You are in excellent company with basically everyone else ever. But we shouldn't miss this. Fundamentally, the Bible is one story with one primary author and one main character. Let me say that again. Even with all of its complexities, the Bible is one story with one primary author 
and one main character. Now, the Bible was written down by a lot of different humans over the course of a lot of different years, but the one primary author of the Bible is God. And the one primary main character of the Bible is Jesus. Everyone say God. Everyone say Jesus. About the Bible, we might say it this way. God wrote a book about Jesus. God wrote a book about Jesus. Now think about that for a moment. I know some of you have already tuned me out. I see it happening. Okay? But think about that. You may not believe that's true. But what if I'm right and you're wrong? What if it actually is true that God wrote a book about Jesus? What if I'm right and you're wrong? Right? That would be incredibly significant, wouldn't it? If God is real, again, I know that's a big if. You may not even believe me there. But if God is real, Jesus really did live. We have that. That's established evidence. Okay, Now, who he was, we can chat about that. But if God is real, big if, and if he really wrote a book about Jesus, would that not be a book that you should probably look into just a little bit? God wrote a book about Jesus. And it's a book that tells one story. But what is that story? What's the story of the Bible? Well, it's helpful to tell God's story in big C chapters. So there are chapters in your Bible, but we're talking about big C chapters. The four chapters of God's story are this. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. First chapter, creation. Now, you can read about this chapter at the very beginning of your Bible if you open up to page 1, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. You can read about this big C chapter of creation. And often when we talk about creation, I think we get bogged down in important but secondary conversations. Did God create the world in six 24-hour days? Well, what about dinosaurs? How did they fit on the ark? I learned about evolution in biology class. How does that fit in, if at all? And on and on and on with questions like these. And these are important questions. I'm not dismissing them. But they are not the big idea of this first chapter of God's story. No, the big idea is this. The big idea of this chapter in God's story can be found in the very first verse of the Bible. Typically the beginning when you're looking at a story is a pretty good place to begin. And this is how God's story begins. This is how chapter 1, creation, begins. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Do you see how significant that is? Because what it means is, is that God was here before you. God was here before me. God was here before everything else. In the beginning, what? In the beginning, God. And then it continues, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. Not us, not anything else. In the beginning, God. Something had to be here first. The Bible submits that that's God. In the beginning, God. And, and this God, he created. He created the heavens and the earth. The details matter, but Genesis 1 is not as concerned about the details of creation as it is with establishing this. God was here first, and everything else flows from him. And because God is fundamentally good, at his core, he is good. And initially, since everything else flows from him, then creation was also wholly good. And Genesis chapter 1 will not let you leave reading it without realizing that God's creation was good. Go back and read Genesis 1 at some point. It is going to smack you in the face over and over again. Good, 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 good. God created, it was good. God spoke, he created, it was good. 
Over and over and over again, the big idea of chapter one in God's story is that God got here first, everything else flowed from him, and initially it was good. Chapter one, creation. All right, chapter two, the fall. And you can also read about this big C chapter early in your Bible. You don't have to go far. Probably flip to page two or page three, and you come to Genesis chapter three. Now, God's crowning creation achievement in chapter one was us. You read through Genesis chapter one, and everything is good, 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 good. But then God creates humankind, He creates man and woman. Let us, God says, let us create humankind. And what does He call it? What is it established? It establishes not just good, but very good. I've always said, that we were the cherry on top of God's creation Sunday, right? We are the crowning achievement. Everything else is good. We're very good. Why? Why are we very good? Well, it's because we are the only portion of creation that bears God's image. Let us create man and woman. Let us create humankind in our image, God says in Genesis 1:27. We are created in the image of God, and we are the only part of creation that bears his stamp. And that means a lot of really deeply significant things. It has a ton of important implications into human dignity, into brokenness and justice, and why we ought to fight against those things. But here's one, at least one of the very significant things that it means that you are made in God's image. It means that baked into your DNA as a human is that you are wired for relationship. You are wired for relationship because the God at the center of the universe that created everything else, he is in perfect relationship with himself in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And because we are made in the image of a relational God, it means that we are hardwired for relationship. Hardwired for relationship. You and I, we were built to be in good and right relationship with one another and with the God of the universe. We were created to be inherently relational human beings. And the first humans, Adam and Eve, the first humans that were created back in chapter one of God's story, they experienced this good and right relationship. But part of what it means to have a good and right relationship with anyone, not just with God, but with anyone, is that you don't force them into it. Do we know this, right? Coercion and control are not the building blocks of a good relationship. They never have been, and they never will be. And God knows this to be true as well, which means that when he created us as inherently relational beings that should be in right relationship with him and with one another, he created us with choice, with the ability to choose. And that drives at this significant question that every single one of us has answered in our lives. The question of this, will we choose God and his ways or will we reject him? Instead, forging our own path. And Genesis 3, right? Chapter 2, the fall, Genesis 3. Genesis 3 reveals the story of the very first time. It wouldn't be the last. But it was the very first time that humans made the choice to forge our own path. It is the first moment of rebellion. It is the first moment of rejection. It is the first of many middle fingers that we extended at God. 
And that choice results in the fall. You see, Adam and Eve thought, and we think, that going our own way will be better for us. That it will be for our good, to our benefit. We think that we can do God's job better than him. And we're out to prove it. But Adam and Eve learned, and I wonder, do we know this? Adam and Eve learned that our own way is bankrupt. It is empty. It is not for our good. It is for our ill. It does not bring benefit, but instead brokenness. And I know that sounds counter... It doesn't sound right. It sounds, right? It sounds like an oxymoron. How could me not running my life be better? Have you tried running your own life? How's that going for you? Our own way is not going to lead to your own, our own flourishing. Chapter 2 of God's big story is called the fall because we fell from him. God and his ways are higher and better. Our ways are lower and worse. Anytime that we choose ourselves and our ways over God and his ways, we are falling lower and lower and lower and lower. We fell in Genesis 3 and we've been fallen ever since. And in any other story, that would be the end. I mean, if you were God, wouldn't you have just sort of started over? Do you remember those commercials for Staples a number of years ago where they just had this big red reset button? Wouldn't you have just punched that if you were God? Destroying his, his good and right and beautiful creation? But he didn't. This isn't any other story that is not where it ends. That's chapter 2. We have two more chapters to go. Chapter 3 is redemption. Redemption. Redemption means to bring back, to buy back. When you redeem something, it means that you go and get it. It was far away from you, but it's not far away from you any longer. Why? Because you went and got it. Redemption is God's story. In God's story is the chapter where he goes and gets us. By our own doing, we fell and are far apart from God. But instead of giving up, instead of handing us over to complete death, instead of hitting the staples reset button, instead of any of those options, what does God do? God pursues. God chases. God comes after. God redeems. God gets in front of us again and again and again and again and pleads with us to choose him and his ways. The big C chapter of God's redemption in his story is the longest chapter. When can you begin re reading about this chapter of redemption if you're interested? You can begin reading about it also in Genesis 3. But that's chapter 2. That's the fall. But that is who God is immediately. After we fell, God moved into redemption mode. He started coming after us right away. And in Genesis 3.15, he dropped this hint of a promise. This hint of a promise of someone that would come later on to deal with the problem that we created, the mess that we brought about right here. Even in Genesis 3, verse 15, he's dropping these incredible promises of who will turn out to be Jesus. We'll get there. So you can start reading about redemption in chapter 3 of your Bible, 
And you can keep reading about it in chapter 4 of Genesis, in Genesis 5, in Genesis 6, in Exodus 20, in 1 Kings 9, in Psalm 103, in Micah 6. The Bible is one book that is made up of lots of little books. And from Genesis 3 onward, you can read about redemption. You can read about God bringing us and the world, his world, back to himself. And this is a beautiful story to read. It's occasionally a confusing story to read, but it is a beautiful story to read, and it is a compelling story to read. Let me tell you why. Because at the core of this story is a hero who, in the middle of incredible adversity, when it looked like he was going to fail against all odds, the situation could not have gotten any worse, he fought through and he prevailed. That's the story of the Bible. That is every Marvel movie that has ever been made. They ripped it off of God. Wait, we're not there yet. Hold on. (laughs) Hold on, hold that up. Hold on, too soon. I'm coming back to that. I'm coming back to that, all right? Okay, we're not there yet. I had two Marvel references tonight, okay? That's the storyline of every Marvel movie ever, but it was God's story first. In in God's story, the situation that he was dealing with on earth, the mess that we created, it went from bad to worse to horrible to horrific. It just kept deteriorating, and yet God did not surrender. He kept coming. He kept fighting. He kept pursuing. In the face of rejection, in the face of rebellion, God did not abandon us, but he kept chasing us. And he chased us to the point of sending us his one and only son, Jesus. He sent us Jesus to secure our ultimate and lasting redemption. He promised Jesus The first hint of that promise is in Genesis 3.15, and eventually Jesus came to secure our ultimate and lasting redemption. Jesus is the main character in God's entire story, and chapter 3 is where he really begins to shine. You see, redemption would not have been possible without Jesus. Jesus is the climax of the story. Jesus is the turning point of the story. Jesus is when everything looks as though it had been lost and then Jesus shows up. And this is where Iron Man's snap comes in, right? Because that moment looked as though it was over. It was done for. And if this is a spoiler, it's been out for like four months. I don't know. Like he snaps it and he dies. Like I'm assuming like it's made. Okay, all right. But this is... Right? This is the moment in these movies, right? From 2008 until 2019, for 11 years, Marvel dropped 22 movies to get to this point right here where it looked like Thanos was going to win, where it looked like against all odds the Avengers were finally going to lose, right? They ripped this off Jesus. We had it first. Jesus had it first. Jesus showed up and changed everything. Jesus Christ is God in front of you saying in the loudest possible way, choose me, choose my ways, let me redeem you, let me lead you into new life. Jesus is God in front of you in the most powerful possible way saying, let me redeem you. Let me bring you back to the life that you were created to live. 
Redemption is possible in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus is so central to God's story that the entire second half of the Bible, the New Testament, it tells his story and it reflects upon his significance. And Jesus is so central to God's story that the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, all that it's doing is eagerly anticipate Jesus' is coming. The Old Testament is just a bunch of waiting for Jesus. And it is important waiting. There are all of these promises scattered over the Old Testament about a Savior that would one day come. A person who would consistently choose God and his ways. Who would consistently choose God and his ways. And then that person would willingly give of his life to purchase the redemption of others. A person that would give of his life. A person who would be killed, would be murdered. But then incredibly, a person who would defeat death. A person who would be carried into his grave dead, but then would walk out alive. And friends, that person is Jesus. That Savior is Jesus. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And redemption is possible through him and him alone. Here's the question. What are you going to do with Jesus? That is the question that is at the center of God's story. What are you going to do with the person of Jesus? That's chapter three, redemption. It's the longest point because it's the longest chapter, right? God is coming after us and coming after us and coming after us. But we've got one more chapter. We've got one more chapter. We still haven't gotten to the chapter that is contained in Horatio Spafford's final verse of it is well. The verse where he could beautifully and powerfully write about Jesus' return and all that that return would mean. That's new creation, chapter four, new creation. You see, after Jesus was killed and rose again, he spent 40 days with his followers. He appeared to over 500 people. Do you know how significant that is? In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church in Corinth, and he mentions this, that, that Jesus had appeared to over 500 people. Do you know why he mentions it then? Because Paul is writing this letter only a several years after Jesus had died. So many, if not almost all of these people were still living. So Paul is saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down the street and knock on Bill's door and ask him if he really saw Jesus that had come back to life. Jesus with the scars in his hand. Jesus with the, the, the scars in his feet. Jesus who could float through walls and yet still ate because he had a resurrection body. Go knock on Bill's door and see if Jesus really was alive. Because 500 people saw him still alive. Jesus, the only man who died and lived to tell about it and showed up to 500 of his followers who then now, Jesus' followers count in the billions. It started with 500 people. Why would 500 turn to billions? Because Jesus really did come back to life. Because those 500, if someone died in your life and they really came back to life and you were convinced of this, would this not change your life so deeply that you would go out and start a movement that eventually billions of people would be a part of? Jesus really walked out of that grave three days later. And I don't know about you, but that seems significant. He spends 40 days, he appears to over 500 of his followers, and then he leaves. 
But he gives two promises before he leaves. The first is to send a helper. He actually says, it's better for you that I'm leaving because I'm sending somebody behind me, the helper, which just stop and think about that. You had the risen Jesus, and Jesus is like, actually, this dude that's coming after me is even better. What does that say about the Holy Spirit, right? So so Jesus says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. What's the second promise? Jesus says, I'm coming back. His second promise is that he is coming back. And Jesus says, when I come back the second time, I'm going to make all things right for all time. I'm bringing heaven with me fully. I brought it with me the first time, but I'm bringing it fully. I'm going to fix everything that's broken. I'm going to destroy the darkness for good. And I'm going to rebuild God's original world. We will call it the new creation. It's coming. I'm coming. Wait for me. I'm coming back. That's what Jesus said. New creation is the big, beautiful ending of God's big, beautiful story, and it's almost too good to consider. I mean, listen to this. This is what's promised in new creation. No more death ever. No more cancer. No more pain, no more brokenness, no more war, no more tears, no more sadness, no more loneliness, no more heartaches. That is what's coming. If you don't want that, we get hints of chapter 4 of God's story, new creation throughout the whole of the Bible. They're they're dripped in there, these, these little hints. But the new creation comes sharply into focus at the very end. In the final two chapters of the final book, you track with that, right? How beautiful is that? Chapter 1 is creation. Where does that start? All the way back over here, Genesis 1. New creation is chapter 4. It's the ending of God's story. Where does it end? The last two chapters. That's almost like it's a book. That's almost like it's one story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And this is what, this is what John says. He has a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Don't you want that? Don't you need that in your life? Four chapters, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. This is God's story told in the Bible. Four chapters with one main character, Jesus at the center. What are you going to do about it? You can't do nothing. You can't do nothing with this story. So here, just quickly, let me suggest a couple things. First, admit you need a better story. Admit that you need a better story. Maybe I should back up. Because before you can admit that you need a better story, you need to admit that you have a story at all. But you do. We all have a story. Every single one of us is telling and living a story that makes sense of the big questions of life, that takes us in a particular direction. We all have a story. How does your story answer these questions? Why am I here? Why is everyone else here? What is my purpose? Where is all of this headed? Why is the world broken? Nobody disagrees on that. Everybody, 100% of people are in agreement that the world is broken. But why? 
Why is it broken and how do we fix it? You do have a story that you're telling and living about yourself and about the world. Every single one of us has a story. The only question is this, is it big enough? Is your story big enough? Can it answer those questions adequately? Is it taking you in a direction? Is it giving you purpose and meaning? Andrew DeVonco, a professor and author, wrote a book called The Real American Dream, and he, he argues in this book that humans need to organize their lives around a story. And here's what he says about that. Here's the quote. When that story leads somewhere and thereby helps us to navigate through life to its inevitable terminus in death, it gives us hope. Without some such symbolic structure, without a story by which hope is expressed, one would be a kind of formless monster with neither sense of direction nor power of self-control, a chaos of spasmatic impulses and vague emotions. Next slide. We must imagine some end to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours if we are to keep at bay the dim, back-of-the-mind suspicion that one may be adrift in an absurd world. Which, that's the question. Is the story that you're telling leading you somewhere with hope, or has it left you adrift in an absurd world? You have a story, you do. You have one that you're telling and that you're living. I just wonder, is it big enough? First, admit that you need a better story. Second, give God's story a chance. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Have you given God's story a chance? Now, maybe it is your story. Every moment of every day. If so, wonderful. Press into it deeper and deeper. But maybe it's not your story. Maybe you tried it once, twice, a few times, and you found it wanting for some reason. Or maybe you've never even considered making God's story your story. Maybe you've never even heard God's story until right now, tonight. Whatever the case may be, if it is not your story, I invite you, here and now, consider making God's story your story. Among all that God's story offers, it gives a framework for the big and challenging questions of life. Now take the question where we started, right, with Horatio Spafford, the question of suffering. What does God's story do with that question? It's a question that Horatio had. It's a question that the Apostle Paul had. And I know it is a question each and every one of us have. If God is so good, why is there brokenness? Why is there suffering? Run it through the chapters really quickly. Chapter 1, creation. Suffering is an abnormality and deviation from God's, from God's good world. He did not build his world with brokenness in it. Suffering was not a part of God's original blueprint Every time God encounters brokenness and suffering, he screams, it ought not be this way. If anyone has ever told you anything different about brokenness and suffering, they were wrong. It shatters God's heart. So why is it here? Not chapter one. Chapter two, the fall. Suffering is a reality now because of our decision to choose to define good and evil for ourselves. It shouldn't be this way, but it is because of our rejection and rebellion. God didn't invite suffering to the party. We did. We did. Suffering is here because of us, because of sin, because of brokenness. But thanks be to God, chapter 2 isn't the end of the story. The world should not have suffering, but it does. But chapter 3... 
redemption. Suffering can be redeemed for Christ, through Christ for his greater purposes. And Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. After we read from him that he is pressed but not crushed, that he is knocked down but not destroyed, we then read this. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that because the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. Now, Paul is not saying that suffering is not a big deal. He is not saying that God does not care about suffering. He is not saying get over it and move on. What he is saying is that God has, unlike anyone else, an ability to pull beauty out of the brokenness. We suffered, he says, and you came to know Jesus and enter into the new life because of it. Suffering can be redeemed. And chapter 4 new creation. Suffering will be eradicated and seen to be as nothing in comparison to the world to come. Paul also talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4. He writes this, though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and that will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now, rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Paul's solution, his hope-filled solution to suffering is to fix your eyes on what you cannot see, which sounds impossible. How in the world can I look at what I don't see? Well, today, friends, we look by faith. We look by faith. We look at what is unseen by way of trust and belief that God is going to do what he promised, that Jesus really did rise from the dead and Jesus really is coming back to make everything sad come untrue, to rid the world of suffering and brokenness once and for all. Today we look by faith, but then on that day when Jesus comes back, today we look by faith, but then but then, Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend a song in the night, O oh, my soul. Admit you need a better story and give God's story a chance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for your story. It's a really good story. And I'm most grateful of all for the main character within it, Jesus. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. Thank you that he came, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that he is in front of us, begging us, pleading us to choose you and choose your ways. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us all to be humble and admit that we need a better story and help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to give your story a chance, Lord. I pray for us as we close this evening in worship and ask a blessing upon each and every one of these students. Amen.